All right, friends, if you would turn in your copy of Scripture to Amos chapters 8 and 9. Amos chapters 8 and 9. And that can, if you don't have a copy of Scripture, you can look in the Pew Bible. It's on page 769. 769. It's always a little dangerous for a preacher to recommend or to say that he watches certain television shows, and that's no less the case this morning. Uh, My wife and I have grown to love a show called Yellowstone. Has anyone seen Yellowstone? Great, I am going to be very embarrassed now. Yellowstone is about a rancher out in the Yellowstone, Montana area, and it's about all of the foibles and problems that come about among ranchers in western, the western United States. It's somewhat of a gangster movie, except with cowboy hats. And uh, one of the main character's enemies, he has many enemies, one day, one of his enemies drops bales of clover in all of his fields. This guy is a cattle rancher, and he has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cattle and thousands and thousands and thousands of acres that he owns. Well, one of his enemies flies over and drops clover in the middle of the field. And, I was, and if you're like me, you're not, maybe not a rancher, and you didn't know that clover is not good for cattle. Because if a cow eats the clover, it swells up and it explodes on the inside. Pretty gross. Uh, fortunately, it didn't show any of that uh, in the show. But one morning they wake up and they look out on this field of cattle and hundreds and hundreds of cattle are laying dead in the fields. And so what's the answer? Well, they can't go through and pick all the clover out of the field, and if they wait too long, the clover is going to take seed and it's going to spread out through all the field and they'll never be able to use it again. So what's the answer? The answer is to burn the fields. And sometimes that's what God has to do in our own lives is to burn it down is to take the roots of our lives that have needled needled themselves into the dirt and soil of unrighteousness, and He has to take it down to the roots and do the healing from the roots in our lives. And that's what God is doing in the book of Amos. That's what He's doing throughout the Minor Prophets, is that God says, I'm going to burn it down. And I'm just going to give a little bit of review so that we can know where we've come from in Amos because you know over a period of five weeks or so, it's hard to remember what happened. Well, if you'll remember chapters 1 and 2, Israel was hearing about God judging all of the nations around them. Remember when I did my little map up here? Well, God was judging all of the nations around them and then God looks at them and says, no, 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 no. Don't think that, that I'm just going after them. The lion is on the prowl and he's going to take you out, Israel, because you are now the enemy of God. And so the Lord says, don't presume to say that we have Abraham as our father and treat me like you've been treating me. Then, we looked at chapters 3 and 4 where we learned that the Lord punishes His people because He is utterly committed to radical truth and radical transparency in His family. Do you remember that? Where the Lord is so committed to truth in our life and us being transparent before Him that He punishes us because He loves us. Because we're His family. Because we are His children. 
He punishes us so that we won't be left to wander and run after our own appetites. And then we felt the weight of chapter 5, which I said was the hinge of Amos, where we have to be careful not to preach a good message, but live an unrighteous life. Where the Lord says, take from me your songs. Take from me your feasts and all of your religious activity. I don't want any part of it because you really don't love me. You really don't believe what you're saying. And I made the plea with us as a church to not be the kind of church that doesn't have fruit in its life. A fruit that is welling up from within, but instead just having religious jargon and being satisfied as though God just wants to hear us talking about religious things. He says, take from me your songs of praise because you don't take care of the fatherless and the widow and those who are in straits. And then last week, Russell rightly shared from Amos 6 and 7 that Amos should serve as the paradigm for us as God's people. Remember, we heard about these different visions that Amos had. The visions of the locusts, the visions of the fire, and how Amos interceded for God's people like Abraham did, and he had compassion on God's people, and we ought to also have compassion on other people. But then he was also in that third vision of the plumb line and the wall that was going to be destroyed because it was so crooked. We should also be courageous in a crooked and perverse generation in which we live. So God calls us to be compassionate and courageous people. So the Lord is in the business of taking our faith, our jargon, our religious activity, and taking it down to the roots so that He can do something miraculous and beautiful in our lives. Sometimes He takes our buildings down to the very foundations so that He can build them up in the right way. So today we're going to see a fourth vision. And I can't help but think that this fourth vision goes all the way back to the beginning of chapters 1 and 2 where He says, for three transgressions and for four, I have this against you. And so the Lord brings this fourth vision of Amos as a fourth transgression, as it were, in real time. And then we're going to see God's response. And He's going to respond in three ways. So if you're counting, that's a four-point sermon. The vision, and then God's three responses in these two chapters. Now, we're not going to be walking through verse by verse, and I'm not going to read the whole two chapters, although I would encourage you to do that this afternoon after the fellowship meal. But the main point of this passage, and I think really the main point of Amos that is underneath all of the judgment is this. Remember, remember that you were called for a glorious purpose. You, Christian, you, a member of God's family, were called for a glorious and beautiful purpose. So we're going to look at that. It begins with this. First point, and this is our first, our, our fourth vision, our first, vi- our, our first vision for today. Our first point is this, and it comes from verses 1 through 6 of chapter 8. Your life is meant 
to share. Your life was meant to be shared with others. Let's look at these few verses to see where in the world I'm getting that from. Well, look at verse 1. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, that means pay attention, behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Well, you don't get this in our English translations, but this concept of a summer fruit is really a putrefied fruit. It's an overripe fruit. It's a fruit that has expired and has been sitting on your windowsill, and it's all nasty. Y'all, it's peach season is, I guess we're at the tail end of peach season. Have you ever set it on the windowsill and you're just like, I'm going to eat that peach in a day. And you wait a day and it's not ready. Then you wait the second day and it's petrified. It's kind of like avocados, right? Like you, you, wait, you wait for this thing to happen and then all of a sudden it's just like, I can't use it, so throw them away. And that's exactly what's going on here is that God looks at this basket of summer fruit and it looks okay from a distance, but then when you start poking it, it's putrefied and it's overripe and it's not good for its purpose. So what's the purpose of fruit? Spent a little bit of time thinking about this, and I, I really thought, what, why, why summer fruit? Of all the things, why would God give Amos a vision of summer fruit that's putrefied? Well, the point of fruit is to be enjoyed by others. What makes a good apple a good apple? It's if you, the consumer of that apple, believe that it tastes good. And what makes a bad apple a bad apple is something that doesn't. You want to spit it out of your mouth. See, Israel had forgotten that its purpose was to be share, a sharing, a blessing to others. Remember, God called Abraham their father and said, I will bless you, Abraham, so that you may be a blessing to others. And the problem a lot of times, both with Israel and then with God's church, is, is that we think, hey, we got, a, we got this great blessing. Let's renovate. Which we've done, so don't, don't uh, point too many fingers. We have renovated this building. But that wasn't the first question we asked. When we were blessed, and when we are blessed, and the first question you ought to be asking is, when God blesses you, which He has, with every spiritual gift in Christ Jesus, what do you do with that blessing? Look at the explanation in verse 4. Why are they putrefied? Why are they overripe? Verse 4. Hear this. You who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end. This was the indictment against Israel throughout the book of Amos. They had not taken care of the needy, but it looked at them as hindrances to their comfort. Well, I don't want to give money to these folks that need it because I need that comfort. They had not taken care of the needy. They had not acted in accord with what God had called them to do and to be as a people. They had good religious talk, but their actions denied that truth. 
Israel was going through the motions of religion. And as I've said throughout our time in Amos, is that God doesn't just send Amos to an irreligious people. He sends them to the very most religious people. But their real concerns, the things that they concerned themselves with that kept them up at night and early in the morning and in the midday, was themselves. They cared more about themselves than they cared about the needy. Than they cared about those who did not know God. Look at verse 5. Say, this is what Israel said. They said, when will the new moon be over? They're talking about the festivals, right? When will the new moon be over? In order that we may sell grain. And the Sabbath, when will it be over? That we may offer wheat for sale. In order that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and, the, and deal deceitfully with false balances. They were waiting for the sermon to be over so that they could go to Cracker Barrel. They were tapping their fingers wondering how long this service will go so that I can go do my business transaction, so that I can get my bank account bigger. They wanted to get done with this religious activity so that they could spend time doing what they really wanted to do. Making a profit. Look at verse 6. In order that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. I can't go into all the details here, but the essence of this is that they were using other people for themselves, for their own benefit, for their own comforts. They were, they were using unrighteous scales. They were mixing in chaff with the wheat in order that they could actually make a profit. That's what's going on here. Is that they cared more about themselves than they cared about other people. They used other people for themselves. In response to this living as though self is the most important, what does God do? As though financial security, because maybe some of us are sitting here and in this room, we're like, well, I don't trample the needy and I don't sell anybody. I'm not mixing chaff with the weed. I'm not doing all these things. But what are you concerning yourself with? What are you spending time in your thought life being consumed by? Financial security? Living your life as though my comforts are more important than being a presence for good in the world? And so God looks at Israel and He looks at us this morning and He responds in three ways. So He responds with a famine. Verses 7-14. through 14. So, your life, point one, your life was meant to be shared with others and not to be self-referencing. Your life was purchased by God to be used for other people. Not for yourself. And when we don't do that, when our, the fruit of our life becomes putrefied and overripe and good for nothing, the Lord responds by sending a famine in verses 7-14. through 14. One way the Lord breaks through our self-centered choices is to bring difficulties into our life. Let me say it again. One way that the Lord breaks down our self 
aggrandizement, our self-conceit, our, our pride, our vanity, our self-centered choices is to bring difficulties into our life. Now, I'm very careful not to equate one for one that if you're going through difficulties right now, there's a lesson that God's trying to teach you. I, don't, I had somebody do that to me one time, and that ain't nice. So if somebody's having difficulties in their life, don't please don't go up to somebody and say, hey, what do you think... What kind of sin do you think God's trying to bring out in your life? Don't do that. Not helpful. You need to read Job because that's what his friends were doing. And that's what Christians a lot of times can do when somebody's going through difficulties. Well, what sin, brother, did you commit that you got treated like that? It's like, no, no, no. That's not how we ought to do it. And so my response to that friend was, there's a lot of sin that the Lord's pointing out in my life. Not just one. Because I think that we ought to look at our difficulties a little differently. If we believe that God is omnipresent, that means present everywhere, and if He is intricately related into the affairs of this world, which He is, and He's not like a a blind watchkeeper who winds it up and lets it roll, if the Lord is intimately connected and involved in this world, then you better believe that He is doing something in the midst of that difficulty. And so the question is, what does He want to do in your life through the difficulty? Why is God being so mean? Why is He tearing it down? Why is He burning it down? Why does He send locusts? Why does He tear the wall down? Why does He throw the fruit basket away? We ought to not be so quick to write off difficulties as though God is not trying to teach us something. So if you're going through difficulties this morning, I want you to hear, first of all, nothing but mercy and love and grace from this pulpit. And if you're going through difficulties, to say, God, what do you want to do in my life? Not what do you want to teach me on a blackboard, but God, what do you want to do in the very intricate part of who I am? What are you doing in my life? What are you calling me to be that's different than what I am? Too many of us respond by just trying to fix the issue. If I could just get them to understand my point of view. If I could just get them to give me a raise. If I could just fill in the blank, whatever it is. So we try to have all these machinations of what I need to do to fix the situation. And the Lord says, Stop it. We're like farmers in the middle of a drought going out with a water hose trying to get our crops to grow. And what needs to happen is to cry out to God. That's what needs to happen first and foremost is don't grab your water hose. Cry out to God. Cry. Cry out. To Him. This response is most clear of what God is after in verse 11. Look at verse 11 with me. Behold, the days are coming. This is this prophetic language about on this horizon, there's a day that's coming. And I'm telling you about it. It's kind of fuzzy. But here's here's a few details. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine in the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. We live in a society right now in America where there is a proliferation of books 
In fact, Ashley, my wife and I, Ashley and I joke a lot of times that a lot of my friends are starting to write books, and I was like, maybe I need to start writing books. Everybody's got to write a book about something. The gospel and Yeti cups, right? The gospel and why thin pants, I don't know, you know, I'm trying to think of something. Too many. We live in a society where you can go onto Amazon and you can pick any number. I need to be a better husband. Well, Better Husband Christian. You'll get a list of 150 books. There is a proliferation of podcasts where you can listen to wonderful, nationally renowned preachers and speakers and teachers. There doesn't seem to be a famine in the land, does there? Does there? But what happens when you walk into any given church on a Sunday morning? Will you hear the Word of God. Will you hear someone say, look at verse 11? Or is that just too archaic? And so the Lord says, don't be satisfied with just high-minded language that makes you feel really good about yourself so that you can go tackle the world. And That's called self-help Christianity, and that is not the Christianity of the Bible. Christianity is not about you ascending the ladder of self-betterment. It is about God descending, taking on the form of a servant, laying down His life for you, independent of anything you could ever do, so that He might have you. To give His life for you, that is the biblical Christianity we read about. So what is this famine? What is this famine that he's talking about? Well, I believe that there can be rain after rain after rain, and the land cannot respond. But what happens when there's been a serious drought and rain, just a torrential downpour comes? You would think, like, that's the answer. No. What happens is the ground has become so hardened to the water that it just rolls off. And you get landslides, like there typically will happen out west. As Israel had experienced tremendous prosperity, they had used it all on themselves. So all of the great podcasts and all of the great books and all of the great teaching, the question for us this morning is this, what are you doing with it? See, Israel had forgotten the call of their father Abraham, and we too can forget the call of our father Abraham, our brother Jesus, who says, I have blessed you that you might bless others. I have given you every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies so that you might share your life with other people. So that you might make a difference in the world. Not in a browbeating kind of way, but in a way that that you actually are enlivened. God has given those passions to you in your heart for a reason. And I'll get to that in a moment. So what does the Lord do? He says, okay, I've sent these rains after rain after rain, and you have not done anything with it. So the Lord takes away the privilege of hearing His Word. Look at verse 12. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the Word of the Lord 
but they shall not find it. And this happened at the end of the Minor Prophets in Malachi. God stopped speaking to Israel. That's the story of the Minor Prophets, is that the Lord says in Amos, I am going to take my word away. And then Malachi ends his prophecy, and he says, no more. And there was silence. There was silence until a a crazy man named John the Baptist started to prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness to call people back to God. And so the Lord had already fulfilled this at the coming of Christ. So there was silence from God. There was a longing and a hunger and a thirst for God's Word. He says, no more. You've squandered these gifts. So then the Lord, after responding in famine of His Word, He responds in a second way, by shaking. He responds by shaking. Look at verses 1-10 through of chapter 9. There's a fifth and a final vision of God's response to His people. So remember what I said? These first four visions are are God's assessment of Israel. The fifth vision is God's response. He says, I'm going to send a famine, but I'm going to do something else. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and He said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. And then the next few verses, there is a reversal of God's disposition towards His people. They had set themselves against God, and so God said, okay, If you want to set yourselves against me, prepare yourself, because I am going to treat you as my enemy. See, Psalm 139 is a really beautiful psalm. Where can I go from your presence? Where can I, if I go down to Sheol, behold, you're there. If I go up to the highest heights, Lord, even there, you're there. If I go take the wings of the dawn and fly to the east, you're going to be there. That should be comforting language. It's meant to comfort us that God is with us all the time. It is a comfort. But in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 9, we see that God's presence can also be very terrifying if you are his enemy. Look at verses 2 through 4. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, which they will, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. If you set your. So listen clearly. If you set yourself up against God, He's your enemy. If you choose to live your life on your own terms, you are His enemy. If you hear God's Word and you say, not having that. I want to live life my way. You've set yourself up against God and so prepare yourself for this. 
So friend, if you do not call out to God, you will be destroyed. There is a beauty to a holy fear of God. A lot of times we talk about God being my co-pilot, my buddy. Probably good to have God as your co-pilot. Probably good to have him as your buddy. Those are all good things, but that's not what we see here in this passage, is it? Is that there is a beauty to a holy reverence and fear for God. It is true that He is tender and kind and merciful and long-suffering and gracious and good. The nearest friend that you could ever have. But why is it so reassuring and empowering? Have you ever considered that? The reason is, is because of who He is. And that's what Amos wants us to see. Look at verses 5-7. through seven. The reason why His presence is terrifying, but it ought to be comforting, is because of 5-7. through seven. Let's look at it. The Lord God of hosts... Hosts is another word for armies. This Lord of these heavenly armies... He who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt. He who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth, the Lord is His name. That's who your friend can be. The one who touches the earth and it melts. The one who gives rain in its season and it waters the grass of the field graciously to produce fruit. It's true that we ought to look back on God's faithfulness and gratitude ought to well up from within our hearts. That's that's a true thing. And you've often heard me say that that is a good way to fight uh, faithlessness is to look back at God's faithfulness in the past. There's a place for that. But, you also ought to hear this. There must be a daily appropriation of God's faithfulness to you now. Let me say that again. Yes, look in the past of how God has been faithful to you, but also realize that He wants to be faithful to you right now in the present. Israel had looked back on their history And they said, we have Abraham as our father. Look at what God has done in choosing us and making us His treasure possession. Wow, we're so thankful for what He's done for me. He's always been faithful to me, which is true. But they, as well as us, can easily fall into the trap of eating stale bread. Of relying on past manna for present needs. My friend, the Lord wants to remind you of His faithfulness to you in calling you out of darkness into light, but He wants you to today walk in His light. To realize that He wants to give you fresh manna today. Don't be satisfied with your your, your faith from the past. Man, I remember when I just really loved Jesus and I was reading my Bible all the time. Don't set, That's wonderful. That's great. Don't settle for that though. Say, Lord, I want to desire You as I desired You then. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast, a steadfast spirit in me. Lord, do it because You're the only one who can. You need, my friend, fresh manna from God this morning. 
The Lord reminds Israel in verses 7-10 through 10 that they need to find their solace in Him. He destroys His enemies, but will leave a remnant as a testimony to His mercy and His grace for those, this is the key phrase, for those who cry out to Him. Look at verse 8 of chapter 9. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. He reserves a remnant for Himself. Just because He comes to destroy all of Israel doesn't mean He comes to destroy all of Israel. The Lord says, if you will cry out to Me, you will be saved. And so, the question is, when these difficulties come in your life, I alluded to this a moment ago, and when there's an earthquake in your life that's shaking everything, what are you supposed to do? We would have earthquakes every now and then where I grew up in Kentucky. And the first thing they told you to do was to get under a table. Or, if there was no table around, you were to find a, a door frame and stand in the door frame. You were to do anything you could to find the most secure, stable, steadfast thing in the room and hide yourself under it and in it. And that's what God wants to do when He's shaking the foundation of your life. Is He wants you to find Him to be stable and secure because friends will leave you. Family will disappoint you. Your checking account will de diminish. And you cannot find any solace in anything other than God. He wants you to run to Him as the only secure thing in your life. Look at verse 9. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the ground. The Lord is shaking you so that you will run under cover, under His cover. And that's what He wants to do in your life this morning. So are you going through difficulty? You're in good company. And the Lord says, run to Me. Find your security in Me. Stop running after manna that will not satisfy. But then there's a third way that the Lord responds. This is beautiful. And I'm going to read it in its entirety here in a moment. But He responds thirdly with true Fruitfulness. True fruitfulness. After the Lord has shaken, after He has withheld His Word to bless and given this famine of His Word, once people come to the end of themselves, this is the very moment that He intervenes in your life. Once you say, okay, I'm done. I'm done trying to fix it. I'm done trying to water this famished land with a garden hose. Lord, have mercy. That's when He intervenes. The basket of summer fruit is reminded that they did not grow themselves. They are reminded that they are not meant for themselves, but for the blessing of others. My friend, that is what your life is for. 
If you continue to squander the gifts that God has given you, they will putrefy. Your life was meant to be shared with others, but the Lord has to act in your life. That is very clear in these verses. Look at verses 11-15. through 15. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes. Him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I Myself will restore the fortunes of My people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. That day, that day promised came when the booth of David was raised up again in the birth of Jesus. And when we stop trying so hard, when we stop thinking that God produces fruit in our lives for us only, when we begin to see that God plants passions in your heart to be His presence on earth and to find life in serving others, that's when you'll see true fruitfulness and true abundance in your life. I want to end our time reminding you of something I had you do a couple weeks ago. I had you write down something in our neighborhood that gets in your crawl. That's a Kentucky way of saying that irritates you. I believe that God puts those things in your heart to see the world that something's not right. Why? Because I believe the Spirit of God, this is a deep theological commitment that I have, is that the Spirit of God causes you to see with your eyes things that I can't see. There are certain things in the world that I see that I just miss. But there are certain things that I see in the world that you may miss. And there's a purpose for that, is that the Lord in His multifaceted wisdom and grace has given us to each other as a body of believers to go out into the world as children of God and servants of Christ to love and serve others. That's what we say every week. Thanks be to God. And so my question for you today is that my friend, it is time for you to take a step of faith and help remedy that problem that you wrote down. No longer waiting for other people to do something about it. Because if you wait, the fruit will be overripe. Not to earn anything from God. You're not earning any brownie points and you're not earning jewels in your crown. This is being God's presence on earth because He put you here for a purpose. And your purpose is for other people. And when we grasp a hold of that church, our lives are changed. So if for no other reason, do it for selfish reasons. Say, I, I want to experience more of God. If you want that, 
Then reach out to other people. When you see someone lying on the side of the road, stop what you're doing. Put them on your horse. This is a reference to the Good Samaritan. Pay for their room in a hotel. Give them ointment for their wounds. Take the time so that you can see God in the midst of that problem that you wrote down, that you feel in your heart. And you're like, God, would you do something? And he says, yes, I will. Will you? Will you be a part of what God is calling you to do to experience the beauty and the glory that is God here on earth manifest through His church for His glory, for your good? The question is, is when will you take that step of faith to share your life, to give your life for others? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a beautiful picture that You invite even us to be a part of Your renovation of the cosmos. With all of the brokenness we see in the world, You give us a hammer and a nail. You give us the compassion to reach out to others, to be the healing ointment In this world, God, please forgive us for using our gifts only on ourselves. We pray that You would open up our eyes and see that the fields are ripe for harvest. Oh God, put a sickle in our hand. Strengthen our legs and our arms and our hearts to do the work, not to earn Your favor, but to see more of You. To experience the beauty of fellowship, of communion with You through the power of Your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.